AviationPros.com is the portal website for AMT, airport business, and ground support worldwide magazines. Visit daily for breaking news, industry blogs, and insightful articles from our magazine's editorial team. And don't forget to sign up for our publication's daily e-newsletters. It's all at AviationPros.com. Welcome to the Aviation Pros Podcast. I'm Josh Smith, editor at Ground Support Worldwide Magazine, and today we're speaking with Dr. Benjamin Goodhart, founder and principal consultant at Magpie Human Safety Systems, to examine the idea of complacency in ground operations and how focusing on mindfulness can improve safety on the ramp. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Goodhart. Thank you, Josh. Glad to be here. Well, you and I first met at the NATA Ground Handling Safety Symposium uh, four years ago and have crossed paths at that event uh, in years since, including uh, just a few weeks ago during the 2020 virtual event. And your presentation about complacency and mindfulness was thought-provoking, and I'm excited to have you expand on this topic for our podcast listeners. And to do so, I suppose the, the first thing we really should take care of is provide some clarity on the subject and better define what exactly complacency is on a biological level. Sure. So um, when we talked at the at the ground handling um, safety symposium, uh, my approach was a bit different, right? It, it, I approached uh, complacency from, as I said at the time, an optimist point of view. And, and maybe that isn't exactly the right way to do it, but I thought, <laughs> I thought it might provoke some interest. Um, if we just looked up a dictionary definition of complacency, it, it might point us in the direction of, of this sort of self-satisfaction, right? We, it, we're, just, uh, we're just happy uh, almost to stagnate. But when you look at the way that we use that word at work, and this is not unique to ground operations in aviation, by the way. This is all sorts of work all over the world. If you look at the way we use that term, we talk about complacency as not paying attention to the right thing at the right time. I mean, functionally, that's what it feels like. And so the point that I made when, when we last spoke on this is that biologically, that's a survival mechanism. Because the opposite of that the opposite of not paying attention to the right thing at the right time is paying attention to every single thing all the time, which is sort of the implication, isn't it? It's like, you know, something goes wrong at work and, and we shake our hands or shake our heads, excuse me, or wring our hands and yeah, I, I wouldn't have done that. I would have been watching this dial or this gauge or paying attention to the turn limits on that gear or what have you. And, and the reality is most people uh, do the thing that that exactly makes sense at the time with the information they have. So that that idea that that our mind needs a bit of rest is is a biological necessity. It's a balance of our nervous system. Our 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 nervous system, at least um, the the elements of our nervous system that we don't really always have clear direct control over. Are, are sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. The sympathetic nervous system is that thing that will quite literally kill us because of stress and all the knock-on effects that come with that. So high blood pressure and cortisol build up in our body and uh, we begin holding on to um, 
to cholesterol and things like that. It's really unhealthy. So there's got to be some other answer, I suppose, was my point. Sure. And, and with that, you kind of got into the idea that sometimes when there's a training taking place and a supervisor might look at the, the person learning the job, uh, you know, in, in this example, uh, a ground handling uh, agent uh, down on the ground, uh, on the ground servicing an aircraft. And you talked about just how that supervisor may say, hey, pay attention to this. But you also got at the at the idea that maybe telling someone to pay attention isn't the most effective way to train them. Right. I mean, look, Josh, it, it can be for a short period, right? So, um, you know, we're learning a new task. And a big part of teaching and training is, is building context for the person that's learning. So if, if you're my supervisor and you, you tell me, hey, look, when you're doing this job, you really have to pay attention to this thing. I mean, that's something different than what I was referring to. Um, that is, that's, that's being a good teacher. It's, it's helping me filter out what's important and what's not. But what happens a lot of time is when things begin to go sideways at work. And look, not everything that happens at work is catastrophic, right? Sometimes it's just, you know, you almost put the wrong fuel in the airplane, but you catch it. Or um, you're checking uh, and doing some fuel QC, and you almost let some fuel slip by that, that wouldn't really meet spec, right? It, and those things almost happen, and we're really hard on one another in those settings. You go, come on, dude, pay attention. Get your head out, right? You get, get pay. You gotta pay better attention. And we say things like that, and that's that is that's completely different than those training settings where we're trying to help people know what's important. That idea that anytime something goes wrong, that we just shout at somebody to pay more attention. Uh, it's an unsustainable uh, practice, right? It, it, it makes it look like we care, but it doesn't really help much. That's a good distinction about, um, I guess, encouraging attention. If if you're doing it ahead of time, maybe in a training setting, you know, please pay attention mm -hmm. to these qualities versus asking after the fact with some hindsight saying, hey, why didn't you pay attention? Maybe that's a little less right. effective. Yeah, and I think that word hindsight is so important, isn't it? You know, we talked about in that um, in that presentation I gave uh, when we were last together uh, about hindsight being the thing that really triggers the, this concept of complacency. It can't exist without hindsight, and, and and that sounds like I'm overstating it, I think. But but when you go through it, you get every every possibility that you work through, you'll come to that conclusion. It is impossible to know in real time what's important based on outcomes until the outcome has happened. And that means that without hindsight complacency, it just doesn't exist. We can't be a good judge of it. So when we see it and we try to blame things on complacency, uh, you know, invariably the complacency comes up as, as a causal factor, quote, in an investigation after something goes wrong. It isn't. It's no more a causal factor than, than pointing down at the ramp and saying, yes, this asphalt is black. I mean, it's just pointing out a condition, but it's not causal. 
and it's only something that exists after we make some judgment based on an outcome. And so I, I think that's important. It's a it's a distinction that you made that's that's really critical to this whole thing. So if we're talking about you know reactive circumstances mm-hmm. um and we flipped the script and looked at some things you can do proactively i believe that's where uh you brought up some of the ideas around the quality of mindfulness and how that can be a little bit more constructive to uh to focus on improving mindfulness versus looking back at things and uh, blaming complacency yes and and mindfulness as you probably saw is it can be a sort of a polarizing term, right? It it sounds um, it sounds esoteric. It sounds touchy feely. Um, I use the term honestly because I don't know another one that works better to describe what we're trying to do. But if we go back to that that earlier discussion about you know look if Josh if you're training me to do a new task. Um, and let's just make something up, right? We're going to go use uh, a tow barless uh, tow tractor, right? And, and I'm used to, to driving an ordinary tow vehicle around with a tow bar. Um, you're going to you're going to point out some important things ahead of time um, that that I do need to devote my attention to. You're giving me the opportunity ahead of time, right, to decide where to channel my focus, where to channel my attention. That purposeful application of attention is mindfulness. And there was a really good question that came up in that presentation at the Ground Handling Safety Symposium, which, which was keeping me honest, right? It said, well, what's the difference in telling someone to pay attention versus being mindful? Well, the difference is pay attention in that context that I used that, right? That after the fact, dude, come on. You gotta pay attention, right? That is not a useful, nor is it a sustainable solution to to a problem. Mindfulness is a specific set of tools for the purposeful channeling of attention. It means that rather than paying attention to everything all the time, that I'm able to pick and choose. And we talked a little bit about that almost that state of flow, right? I, I don't know if you remember, I showed a picture of a, of a caveman walking through the woods hunting, right? <laughs> and, and we've all been in that state before where our senses are heightened, our awareness is heightened, but not to everything. Our focus is on the things that matter. And in that case, it was, you know, stalking this uh, caveman's next meal. It may be um, that before we start some sort of tow evolution on the ramp, that we do a pre-brief and we say, listen, we're towing this type of aircraft because the fuel loading on this thing, it's just, it's just always a little light on the nose. So we're going to be really careful on a couple of turns where we know that the slope of the ramp is working against us here. Uh, wing walkers, this is really what I need from you on this. And we get that shared mental model together. And we've got some tools for, again, for being mindful about the practice, purposeful about where our attention is focused, rather than just diving into it and hoping for the best. And it's really all mindfulness is in practice. It's, it's really all it is. It's being purposeful about how we devote our attention, knowing that biologically, if we're not purposeful, 
we exhaust those resources quite quickly and we actually become worse at all of it. <laughs> and that's sort of the opposite of what we're hoping, isn't it? It really is. And I, I like the, um, the idea of it being a tool to help channel, uh, channel that attention. I, I like that phrase because, you know, we talk so much about um, what's provided to workers down on the ramp, whether it's um, mm -hmm. safe equipment, whether it's, you know, PPE or anything else that, uh, a member of the ground personnel needs in order to do their job. And to think of it in that way, that this is just a tool to help them, you know, best use the attention available to them. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense in this, in this regard. I think it's a great way to think about it, Josh. Frankly, could I move an aircraft without a tow bar? Well, if there were enough of us, I'm sure we'd get it going. Right? <laughs> we'll just all push on something. We'll move the thing. But it's a whole lot easier with a tow bar that's designed to mesh with that gear system is designed for that class and weight of aircraft uh, and the right sort of tow vehicle. And, and you're right, mindfulness is, it's really just a set of tools. Now, it could be something as, as simple as SOPs, right? It, it could be that a, a standard operating procedure is, hey, normally step one, step two, step three, SOPs are just applied focus of attention. It tells us in order, chronologically what we probably ought to think about. So it is a mindfulness tool, but there's still a lot of us that work in ground service that, that kind of wing it on any given day. And I don't want to be too harsh on us as an industry, but that's reality, isn't it? That, that we go out, we begin some sort of, of, of service evolution for an aircraft, whether that's um, catering on board the thing, whether it's moving this thing, uh, stacking or unstacking hangers, uh, refueling the aircraft, any any number of things. And and we get so used to doing it that, that sometimes we forget to just be a little bit afraid. And those tools for mindfulness remind us of where where failure typically lurks. Even though it didn't happen yesterday or the day before or maybe even the day before or for a long time, Here's where it might be. And that comes back, I think, to the discussion that we had on, on creating reliability and resilience, is that, that sort of unwillingness to give up thinking about, even though we don't fail often, we know sort of where it might be. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. I want to get into a few more of those points as well. Uh, but why don't we step aside real quick for a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have more on mindfulness with Dr. Benjamin Goodhart. Would you like to reach key decision makers in the industry? Share your message on the Aviation Pros podcast and reach key leaders across all facets of aviation, including aircraft maintenance, airports, FBOs, airlines, and ground handling. Contact one of Aviation Pros' helpful account representatives to find out more. We're back with Dr. Benjamin Goodhart, founder and principal consultant at Magpie Human Safety Systems. And we've had an opportunity to dive into a little bit more about mindfulness, better define it and understand exactly what mindfulness is. And another phrase that you used there that I really liked was we forget to be afraid. Um, can you expand a little bit more on, on that, uh, Dr. Goodhart, and just uh, maybe get into how we can remind ourselves to be afraid to bring that mindfulness uh, back to the forefront? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, one of the, the 
one of the neatest bodies of research on this. Uh, it comes from Carlene Roberts and Dr. Roberts uh, in her work out at um, University of California in Berkeley decades ago started really asking a question that a, a lot of other people weren't asking, which is why is it that some organizations do really dangerous stuff and they're just successful almost all the time? Why is it that they're successful and in other organizations we're doing pretty routine things and we tend to just screw it up all the time. <laughs> what a cool question to, to ask. And the thing that really struck her was looking at the U.S. Navy and looking at the U.S. Navy and particularly on the deck of an aircraft carrier. So some really pointed challenges, right? Uh, speaking of pointed, there's pointy aircraft everywhere with giant vacuum cleaners <laughs> attached, right? They'll suck you in if you're not paying attention. That's dangerous. They have pointy things that explode attached to them. That's dangerous. By the way, the airport has cliff edges all around it. And if you fall off, it's a long time before somebody can come get you. So there's all this stuff going on. If that wasn't enough, there's these big catapults running up and down the deck that can split you in half without even missing a beat. So very, very dangerous environment. The average age is under 20 years old, or was at the time that she was doing the research. So you, so you can't say, well, look, all these things are going on, but it's a massively experienced crew. They're not. Chronologically, they haven't had time yet to be that experienced. But more often than not, it just goes remarkably well. So Dr. Roberts looked at all this and said, holy smokes, there's got to be something. And so in that work, and that's been taken up by a lot of folks uh, since then, um, Kathleen uh, Sutcliffe is another researcher, if you're interested in just Googling some of these things. But one of those things that they found, um, that, that Carlene Roberts found, is that this preoccupation with failure is something that almost all really resilient and reliable organizations share. They, they're preoccupied with talking about what might go wrong and gaming it through in their head. And so what we can learn from that, from that environment is in the context of a pre-brief, which is one of the most powerful tools for mindful practice of work, is a, a very short pre-brief. People uh, swear up and down to me, Jess, that they don't have time to do this sort of thing. If it's 30 seconds, you get plenty out of it, right? So, so eking 30 seconds out of your day for a pre-brief is imminently doable. But, but sitting in that pre-brief and saying, look, some of the things that could go wrong as we try to move this aircraft is we could have some sort of disconnect from the tow bar and it can get away with us. Uh, from us. If that happens, here's what we're all going to do. Um, gosh, has anybody checked to make sure we know that the brakes are off and that this aircraft is configured? It doesn't have some sort of pin that needs to be removed from the gear that will allow us to tow it. Uh, do we know where we're going? Uh, do we know if there's some things in the way? Look, it's really tight as we, as we round this thing and go into the hangar, so really need good eyes on this left wing. You know, it's just pre-briefing through those things. It, it's not that we've got constant heartburn and worry about failure. It's that we're always talking about risk. And that's the key. 
right? She says preoccupied with failure, but, but it's really that there's this dynamic, vibrant discussion about risk. And risk is, uh, just as a quick review, uh, for those of us that aren't thinking about it all the time, risk is really the way we contextualize hazards, right? So a hazard might be wind. Well, if it isn't really windy today, we don't have much exposure to it. There's not a high likelihood or, or that wind is going to affect us and, and, and that it's going to be severe if it does. So it's about talking about the risk based on exposure, what the severity and the likelihood of some outcome might be. That's risk, right? So it's having that discussion over and over. There are a lot of other things that those folks do, those organizations do, but that preoccupation with failure is one of the simplest for us to take into our daily practice. And having that pre-brief meeting seems like a great way to get people's, um, you know, personnel's mind on that task at hand. And is it just as simple as having that pre-brief meeting, for example, over and over again to ingrain that mindfulness into ground uh, folks? Or are there other steps that can be taken to kind of pass that that mindfulness that you may possess as a supervisor to yeah. other people within the operation? The way that you've worded that question is great because what you said that, that really struck me is to pass that mindfulness you may have as a supervisor. So, you know, a, a big part of mindfulness is practice, right? It, it's, just, it's just practice. It's doing the thing that we said that we were going to do. So if we're going to commit to doing pre-briefs, and I am a, a believer in the power of a good pre-brief, I think we, we do have to ingrain it, was the word that you used. We have to ingrain it in our daily practice and live what we said we were going to do. But we also have to make it valuable. So I think one of the mistakes that people often make is they say, we're going to do a pre-brief, and then there's no structure around it. Now, I don't possess any sort of magic recipe for structure for a pre-brief. I can tell you what I think is important, right? I know that that preoccupation with failure, for instance, is is something um, that powers those very, very reliable organizations. So I think a good pre-brief ought to address some of the risk that we're looking at today. I think it ought to address some of um, individual roles. You know, if I'm the one that's on the tug, then I need to clarify that, look, I can't be, I'm not monitoring the wings. I'm relying on you to monitor wings or the tail for me. And here's what I expect from you. Um, it's an opportunity to ask or to demonstrate how to ask some of those clarifying questions that really help sort things out. But you said that that part about as a as a supervisor, maybe I've got uh, maybe a, a different look uh, or sense of how these things go. I mean, the really cool part about so many of these tools for mindfulness is that they make our thinking out loud and make our thinking out loud. See, when, when all of that reasoning is just going on inside my noggin as a supervisor, my team can't see it. They don't hear it. They have to guess what the boss is thinking. And so that pre-brief is my time to just talk about what's going on in my head, how I'm making those decisions. And what you find is, if you've ever done really good hands-on training, is that some of the best trainers just talk continuously as they're doing. Well, now I'm going to do this. 
I'm focused on turning this valve now because this valve is going to make sure that this pressure stops here and the rest of the system isn't energized. That's important because I'm going to open this other valve. They're talking it through as they're thinking. And that does a couple really cool things. For the trainer, it slows our mind down and we have a difference between what's called system one and system two thinking. When we get from system one to system two thinking, we're able to then talk in real time. We're able to identify error coming through. That system one is the sort of like really quick subconscious decision making. If we're doing that, the folks who are trying to learn from us are at a disadvantage. So when we slow down and we force our mind to go at the same pace, we can talk. It does so many really cool things for us. So a lot of this is about slowing down to the point where I can describe what I'm doing. And that's another really easy to operationalize practice is that debrief is your opportunity or pre-brief, excuse me, is your opportunity to do that. See, in, in that pre-brief meeting also, like you mentioned, your your in addition to just talking about the things that may be on your mind, uh, maybe you're sharing some things that, you know, as you put it, um, focused on, you, you may be focused on things that might go wrong. And mm-hmm. as a result, it can put uh, practices into place to prevent those things from happening. And I believe you touched on that a little bit in your presentation at the Ground Handling Safety Symposium as well, that if you're focused on what might go wrong, you afford yourself an opportunity to maybe correct problems before they're causing any trouble. I, I think you do have, you've got this chance not only to, to correct something or, or maybe, maybe more correctly put some barriers in place ahead of time, but you also have time to change the way someone else thinks about that. You know, you said earlier that you refer to the, a supervisor may see things a bit differently, and, and that comes with experience. Um, it may just uh, come as a, a result of some context that they've had that other people don't. So when we create that, what, what a human factors scientist would call a shared mental model, right? To me, I, the way I think of this is if we were all cartoon characters, we'd have this little thought bubble above our head, and it would all look roughly the same. I mean, it's unfortunate that we don't have thought bubbles like that. So I couldn't just look over and say, does Josh understand what we're doing here? And I'd look over and go, oh, this thought bubble is about the same. We don't get that. But if, if you rolled us into a functional MRI side by side and we were able to talk through a problem and to give a bit of context to, you know, as I raise this issue, and it may not be something that you've thought of, as we start talking through that potential exposure, that risk, and what we're going to do about it, our brains go from having dissimilar patterns lighting up in an MRI to sharing the same pattern. And and you can not only see that medically in in a magnetic resonance machine, uh, you can see that as it works functionally because now, We've got a whole lot less disagreement because we've addressed the thing ahead of time. So, uh, again, it's, it's not this magic force field that allows us to, uh, I don't know, sort of presuppose any failure that might come up. It's that we start from the same place 
instead of having to negotiate where we are in real time, your understanding versus mine. And that's when things go pretty wrong. In an organization, you know, we're, we're trying to do some complex task, and in the midst of it, as things start to go off the rails, they're not quite as expected. If your starting point and my starting point were different, we're not only trying to reconcile that, we're trying to capture the error. And doing all that stuff in real time is a massive ask. I, it's, it's nearly impossible. I don't know how any of us would do it. So it, it, again, it's, it's just about trying to, it's about trying to be purposeful with what gets our attention and to make sure that the way we think about what gets our attention is shared in the team. I don't know if I've said that as eloquently as, as I intended to. No, I, I'm following along with you. Um, I, I think it makes sense. And, and I guess my last question for you may be, you know, trickier than, you know, just the wording of it. But I, I guess if we wanted to offer some advice to those listening to this podcast about how to get started in yeah. improving their mindfulness and you know maybe we're let's assume we're speaking to a supervisor who wants to instill this quality into their team do you have any advice on just how to get off the ground and start implementing this you know this way of thinking and this practice into place uh, absolutely and i think especially for supervisors supervisors have magical superpowers and and the reason is they remember what life is like on the front line, but they also have exposure to some of the, the high-level sort of strategic stuff that we do at work, right? So they get to live a bit in both worlds, and that means uh, they can translate uh, one way to the other. Uh, so I'm happy that, that, we're, um, that in this example we're talking to a supervisor because they've also got street cred, right? They're influencers in the organization. So... As a supervisor, there's a couple things that we can do to, to, quote, get started on this, right? One is that we've got to demonstrate how we think. Generally, supervisors have been around long enough and been successful long enough that that's how they've gotten to that position. But training somebody how to fuel an airplane and training someone how I think about managing the workload through the day two different things. And to do that, it really requires a lot of, of, of maybe introspective thinking about how we think. So, so much of this is not technical. It's not the technical component of here's how you know how much fuel to put in the aircraft, right? The crew's gonna ask you, or the fuel panel's going to give you some feedback. But all that, all those steps that as an experienced supervisor we're we're going through at full tilt those things aren't apparent to the to the team around us so as we're doing that it's it's being very very purposeful in approach and modeling that idea of mindfulness so a couple good examples of that one uh, example that i showed you might remember was the the japanese rail workers that idea of shisa kanko now, look, whether or not you want to uh, obviously point and talk through things as you're doing it, I, I'll leave up to the individual. What I will say is that the research is 
is absolutely clear and overwhelmingly so that it has a huge impact on training efficacy. So as a supervisor, if I want my team to get closer to my level faster, that's one way to do it. And the reason that it works, again, is that it makes, it makes how I think something that they can hear and see. It's mindfulness put into practice. And it slows us down from that automatic, quick system one kind of thinking to that system two type of thinking where we're processing through it. And it's about sticking to it with, with consistency, right? If we're a leader that people are looking to, we have to show them how we divide our attention throughout the day. And it's not 100% on everything all the time. Our hard drive would blow up if that were the case. So it's, it's how do we find those things that are important? As a supervisor, the last thing is that we've got We've got organizational levers, not just individual levers that we can focus on as well. That means giving people uh, the, the opportunity to make their own decisions as low in the organization as we can as a supervisor, allowing our teams to make good risk-informed decisions, but being there to help cage that when, when it needs it. I, I've, I've framed this before as sort of building a sandbox, right? As we're as we're experimenting a bit with policy or procedure, how we do something in our work, you know, doing that with a customer for the first time on a really stressful day, probably a bad idea. But there's always that one slow Tuesday and we've got a, a, the full crew here and maybe we can test some things out. It's about building those opportunities in, right? And, and as a supervisor, we've got the ability to, to shape how people view that. So I, I think that there's, uh, it is not um, maybe a, a radical change in how we do work, but it's, it's often remembering as an experienced person what it felt like to be afraid, uh, remembering to be just a little bit afraid, focusing on what those things are, where error might lie, and then being very purposeful and consistent in how we, how we share that information and how we share our patterns of thinking with the other folks on our team. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think you did a great job of taking a, a very loaded question on my part and, and, and bringing it into a, a nice focused answer. I, I really appreciate that because I was hoping I was getting that point across in the question. I, I think you did a, a, a great job with that. And I really appreciate you summing it up so well for us. Well, it's, it, it, I, I wish it were easier to do, frankly. It, Look, it's a big topic, Josh, and, and uh, I'm thankful that you brought it up because I think it's something, you, you know, maybe the simplest way to, to summarize it now that we're, we're sort of to, uh, to the close of this here is thinking about how we work is one thing, and, it, and it's natural, right? Thinking about how we think is something else, and, and, we, and we have to be purposeful in our efforts to do that. Thinking about how we work is rarely how we fail at work. It's thinking about how we think that trips us up, or, or really the lack of it, right? It, it, is, it is far more often that we find problems at work that relate back to communication or a misunderstanding of a process, or as we said, dividing attention um, with the benefit of hindsight uh, towards something that didn't need it and, and missing the thing that did. 
those are all quite non-technical components. They're all in that category of thinking about how we think. And so as leaders, whether you've got a title or not, right, but as leaders in, in our organizations, and I think anybody listening to your podcast um, has shown that they're taking on that role uh, of a leader, of an influencer in their organization, as a leader, that's, that's one of our biggest contributions is to remind our teams to think not just about how we work, but how we think. Very good. As we uh, wrap up this uh, edition of the Aviation Pros podcast, I'd first off like to thank again our guest, uh, Dr. Benjamin Goodhart. And as you mentioned, it is a uh, it, it's a, a big topic and it can be uh, complicated. And of course, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that folks listening today may have some additional questions. And if they'd like to learn more about this topic or Magpie in general, uh, where can they go to uh, get a little more information or connect with you? Sure. Well, uh, the easiest way to find uh, the gang at Magpie is on our website. Uh, that's safetyforhumans.com, all spelled out. Um, if you can't get navigated over there and you just want to fire off an email, that's easy too. It's info at safetyforhumans.com. And we love talking about this stuff. As you mentioned, it's a big topic. Um, and, you know, it, it, can seem, it can seem daunting. Um, I, I guess the, the last bit of encouragement that I'd give anybody listening is it, it really is one of those things where even small steps pay, pay dividends. And so you don't have to feel like eating the, the entire elephant at a time is necessary uh, to see some real payoff in your organization. Sounds great. Well, thanks again for uh, taking the time speaking with us today. Uh, I know I personally uh, enjoyed the uh, conversation and uh, feel like even my work uh, will benefit from it on a day-to-day basis. And I'm sure our, our listeners will feel the same way uh, once they're hearing this up on the website. Well, Josh, thanks for having me. Uh, again, happy to be here and, and to talk about something that I think is uh, is a little bit of fun and is impactful, <laughs> I hope so. Definitely so. Uh, Again, our guest has been Dr. Benjamin Goodhart, founder and principal consultant at Magpie Human Safety Systems. And for additional information about ground handling safety and FBO best practices, please subscribe to Ground Support Worldwide's and Airport Businesses newsletters and be sure to regularly visit aviationpros.com.